For any new farmer, grasping your seasonal crop rotation cycle is vital to stay adrift. Plus, it helps to diversify your farming operation. And this week, we share a winter crop guide for beginner farmers. And while I have your attention, crop farmers, this week's AECI plant health segment focuses on downy mildew on broccoli and cauliflower. Simon Lowe, technical advisor at AEC Plant Health, joins us to identify it and ways to treat this common threat, especially if you're a new farmer. Our book of the week is Permission to Screw Up, How I Learned to Lead by Doing Almost Everything Wrong by Kristen Hadid. And our Farmer Top of the Week comes from Dr. Ethel Piri, lecturer at Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Agri-Science. This is Farmer's Inside Track, supported by Food from Zanzi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 129 of Farmer's Inside Track. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Now, I'm not going to keep you here for long. I'm going to get straight into that promised winter crop guide for beginner farmers. Nicole Ludolf chats to Anastasia Smith, a vegetable farmer from Atlantis in the Western Cape. Thank you so much, Dawn. Anastasia, can you tell us a bit about how you prepare your farm for your winter crops? It depends entirely on what type of soil you have, what type of crop you intend to replace. I have sandy loamy soil, which is ideal for the crop, which I intend to plant. Spinach, as you know, is my main crop. We start off with rotivating the previous crop into the soil, then about 10 cubes of organic material mixed with a basic fertilizer, such as 234 for land prepping. The soil, I am lucky to have a one hectare shade net structure with overhead irrigation system in place, but spinach grows best in cool weather. Best time to plant for early spring to early summer, August, September, October, and then again late in summer into autumn, February, March, and April. What kind of crops can be planted in autumn and winter? Crops that can be planted in autumn and winter would be, for the Western Cape, climate would be beans, beetroot, carrots, celery, kale, leeks, lettuce, onions, parsnips, peas, radish, rocket, spinach, and turnips. What are the differences when it comes to planting between winter crops and summer crops? As you know, some crops are sensitive to extreme cold and extreme heat. So you have to be careful when planning your planting program. Open fields, you have to be most careful as to when it comes to planning and planting open field, as you're at the mercy of Mother Nature. Shade net structures and greenhouse structures are relatively user-friendly Polytunnels is more technical and costly, so it depends entirely on your market as well as your quality of your produce. What would you say are some of the challenges or difficulties you experience that are specific to winter crops? The challenges that I especially experience in winter would be rust. Yes, rust in plants, especially spinach. It is affected by extreme cold or moistness in the air. This fungal disease affects a wide range of plants, Though it rarely kills plant, it reduces the plant's health, vigor, and flower productions. These spores can be transferred either by wind or water. Do you have any tips or pieces of advice for new farmers planting in winter or autumn? Planning, planning, and more planning. I cannot stress how important this is. The knowledge that I have acquired through the Department of Agriculture is so valuable. 
because there are some definite changes that I would make now because of the knowledge that I have acquired. So whether it is big or small, it still and will control the outcome of your production. Thanks, Nicole, and great having you, Anastasia Smith, vegetable farmer based in Atlantis in the Western Cape. You can also read this farmer's inspiring story on www.foodformzanzi.co.za. Now, staying with the theme of this edition, we're now joined by Simon Lowe, technical advisor at AC Plant Health, to explain how new farmers can deal with downy mildew on broccoli and cauliflower. Simon, it's great to have you with us here on Farmers Inside Track. Now, we know from our interactions with Mzanzi's farmers that dealing with crop damage happens more often than farmers expect, but there are preventative measures and understanding how to identify these plant diseases is vital, especially if you're a new farmer. Now, this week, we're covering downy mildew on broccoli and cauliflower, causing serious crop damage. Can you start by telling us what it is and how farmers can identify it on their crops? The disease develops as small lesions on leaves. And over time, these lesions enlarge and become irregular and numerous. These lesions have a damp appearance and often merge to form yellow to orange and brown patches. The underside of the leaf is often fuzzy with mold visible. Now, how is it spread and what are the preventative measures? Downy mildew spreads from infected plants. The disease can overwinter on host crops, wheat and plant debris. The fungus grows best when temperatures ranges between 10 to 15 degrees Celsius and an extended period of damp weather is required to initiate an outbreak of downy mildew. Now, is it possible for the plant disease to be controlled? Yes, a fungicide application will definitely control the disease and stop the spread on the leaves as well as to other uninfected plants. Now, can these crops that are affected by this disease be fed to livestock if it's not fit for human consumption? If you do happen to eat crops that have been infected with powdery mildew, there's usually nothing to worry about. In some cases, an allergic reaction can occur. It's not advisable to eat them. The disease can reduce the taste or the nutrients within the crop. So normally it's also not advisable for livestock consumption. And then finally, before we let you go, do you have any tips for farmers dealing with downy mildew on broccoli and cauliflower? The best advice would be to remove and destroy old plant debris, do proper weed control around your fields by planting resistant varieties to the disease will also prevent any new infections. Thanks so much once again, Simon Lowe, Technical Advisor at AC Plant Health. We now change gears from plant health to one of the most vital plans for future growth of Mzanzi's agri-sector. Now, after 18 long months, South Africa's Agriculture and Agro-Processing Master Plan, set up between government, labor, civil society and the agri-industry for inclusive growth, was signed off last month. Now, we hosted a number of agri-thought leaders to explain the master plan to us in our weekly Twitter Spaces session called Gather to Grow, and I thought I'd share some highlights with you here on Farmers Inside Track. Dr. Sifiso Ntombela was one of my guests, and he is, of course, the Chief Economist at the National Agricultural Marketing Council and the Deputy President of the Agricultural Economics Association of South Africa. He unpacked some of the key objectives of the Agricultural Agro-Processing Master Plan. We surveyed the agriculture and the agro-processing sector, which is really the first plan that combines the two, the primal and the secondary industries within the food system. One of the key objectives was then how do you ensure that you increase growth or you enhance growth within the agricultural sector? 
part of that is then how do you ensure that growth it becomes inclusive in nature so transformation and development of the sector becomes one of the key objectives of the master plan that was contained there but as we know that we now generate over 50 percent of revenue in the agricultural sector from international market so one of the key objectives of the master plan was to how do you ensure that you create new export markets including also capitalizing on the african continental free trade agreement but also paying attention in maintaining the existing market and when we say market, we're not only referring just to the export market, but also the local market, which, which entails rebuilding the capacity and the infrastructure required to gain operational efficiency on your national futures market or on your informal markets, including your regional market. Part of it as well as the key objective of the master plan is how do you then create an enabling infrastructure so that you can be able to drive competitiveness, so that you can be able to drive innovation and be able to rebuild the basically the competitive edge as we compare to other developing nations within the world. Part of the objectives, which has about nine objectives in the master plan, is really the issue of agro-processing and location of food system. And I think that that's what David was alluded to. But over and above just the agro-processing, including even your storage infrastructure, if you're looking at the line of our country, you realize that most of those farmers, including the smallholder farmers, are one of the biggest producers of cattle and sheep and other meat. But most of those animals tend to move towards the inland part of the country so that they can be conditioned and translated into the meat. And one of the reasons for that is that there's no storage infrastructure for the grains, hence you see low, the high concentration of the grains within the inland market. So over and above just localizing the agro-processing, what the master plan really is part of the approach is to say, how do you ensure you also diversify the food system, taking into account what the climate change model is saying as the potential areas in the future, but also taking into account where are the low-hanging fruit of really driving this inclusivity and all those value chains that you'll be seeing a lot of small-scale farmers, in particularly black farmers, entering into the formal value chain. As we know that the key approach of the master plan is driving a commodity value chain, which is an end-to-end system of developing our sector. Now, the master plan also has specific timelines with outcomes by 2030. And the one that stood out to me was increasing the share of black farmers in overall production by 20% by 2030 to stimulate meaningful transformation in the sector. Dr. Ndombella also explains what this means for Mzanzi's farmers and especially the new players in the agri-space. Allow me perhaps maybe to unpack that question in a form of saying this social compacting because most of our players within the sector and even the spectators for that matter often say, yes, we do as much as we are encouraged that now the government and the industry are working together and they've co-created this plan, which is something that hasn't been done often in the previous plans. But what is so unique about it and how do we see it moving, not just being another document that will collect dust on the shelf, but being implemented on the ground? And perhaps maybe on that transformation part of it, over and above, one of the key things what we've done for the first time is to try to determine the baseline. When we talk of transformation, how do we measure it? What indicators should we use to track whether we we're progressing or we're regressing? Because we do know that government is driving a lot of transformation initiatives, but also different industries, whether it's commodity associations or whether it's agribusinesses, they've also been doing a variety and investing heavily on transformation elements. What we've done as a first thing on around transformation in this plan is, was to say, let's agree that when we measure on transformation, we're measuring the actual output as a total output of that commodity that is coming out from the previous advantage individuals. And we use black as a, a product definition according to the constitution. And we were able to look at each of the value chain that we've identified. When we're looking at the maize, we look at the total maize, which is that we know we're producing about 14.8 million tonnage of maize per year on average. How much of that comes from the previous individual? Whether it's a small-scale farmer or a subsistence farmer or a commercial farmer, 
but as long as it's, it's classified under the constitution as a previous developing drug. We've done that across, whether you're looking at the citrus or looking at table grapes or wine or meat, you know, such as your beef, poultry and so forth. Then from there, we said, what are the measures that needs to be in place so that you drive the transformation going forward? So those are the measures that are ranging from the agricultural financing, access to financing, the issues of access to water, I heard you talking about the water and the water rights, the issue of land, ensuring that you link with the newly defined beneficiary selection and land allocation policy. But beyond that, the rural infrastructure for those that are sitting in rural areas and the tenure security that are associated with them. And a variety of other issues, including access to planting material, diseases, as well as the markets. What we then did, we then said, if these are implemented according to the plan, the baseline on transformation will move from the X amount, which we know what is a baseline, into X amount of what it will be in the next 10 years, which is what the long-term plan causes aligned to the National Development Plan. And I can tell you, over and overall, the plan is, is basically putting an aspiration of transformation within the next 10 years, moving on an average at the aggregate level now across all agricultural commodities, at an average of about 9%, which we're currently sitting at, to about 20%, which we're seeing that. Some commodities are much higher, some commodities are much lower, but on average, that's what the social partners have said. This is an idealistic and a plausible speed in which we want to double that output coming up from the transformation. So that's what we've done. But beyond that, they said then, yes, we have now aspirations, we have now our baseline, but how do we ensure what models do we come up with to ensure that this thing gets to be implemented on the ground? And one of those is basically a private-public partnership transformation scheme that has been agreed upon, which will really consolidate and leverage on resources between the private sector and government, but often above the skills and the design of it, ensuring that you're taking a value chain approach from the input side all the way to the market access so that the other will be coming out of these transformation schemes will not then have to struggle with access into market, will not have to struggle with issues of skill development, will not have to struggle with issues of infrastructure. So that's a, actually even a, a delivery model that is put in there. So the modalities of it, that's what now the social partners are currently pleased with in the allocation there of the resources. So that's basically how the transformation has been dealt with in details of it. But not only just the transformation element on it, Crystal area on talked about also in length about the labor. We even went in details about the worker schemes that will really drive not only just creating workers and work a better condition of workers, but also how the workers in the agri sector and the farming communities can also take a much more prominent role over and about providing the labor services. It's equally the same on the infrastructure as well as on other competitiveness element of it, where we're saying, let's revisit the position of the structure participation of different social partners in what we call value chain roundtables. And what we've said there is that those things, those delivery model of driving even markets are critical and they are really driving us to achieve this inclusive growth we want. We said, let it be the participation of it, it be at the decision level. So when we're talking for the businesses, we're looking for the CEOs of the businesses, which are the decision makers of business. But equally so from the government side, let it be participated by the at the DG level or the delegated no longer than the deputy director general. So that the time taken to take the decision is shortened and the resources are allocated accordingly at the speed in which we want to achieve all this target. And we've shown that growth of how we'll then progress going forward. Before we sign off, there was a very lengthy and intensive negotiation of each and every number and every word that is contained in that master plan. Government realized, and also other social partners for that matter, realized that there's also an institutional capacity gap between your agricultural organization that are representing your established, most of them that are white farmers, and those institutions that are representing your emerging farmers, which most of them are black farmers. And we said, let it be a commitment within this plan that ensure that not only commodity associations are supported through instruments such as statutory levies and agricultural trust, but government must be able to come up with mechanisms 
of also improving institutional capacity as well as other support into associations that are also representing the interest of the previous 500 individuals, but also other institutions that are representing your former advantaged farmers that are, are lacking behind, because even the former advantaged farmers, some of the institutions are lacking behind in terms of development. So that you close this gap and ensure that when you're getting into the design of programs and ensuring that the interventions that are contained in the master plan are discussed from the equal footing point of view, so that no one is seen as if he's not supported and he can't be able to put their point or her point correctly during the discussion table. And those are the part of the mechanism that we've been put in the master plan to not only just drive agricultural growth, but ensure that institutions that hold government into account and ensure that government do come into the implementation table are also supported so that they can effectively do their job and truly represent the interest of their constituents. So those are some of the elements that let me just elevate in ensuring that how differently, how the framework agreement as well as the monitoring and evaluation according to the indicators have really been unpacking to the detail level we can possibly go to ensuring that it's not just another plan that will correct us once it's been signed off. Now, I must say, I really enjoyed that session. And these were only some of the main points that I chose. So if you'd like to listen to the space, then hop on over to Food Film Zanzi's YouTube channel for more on this. And don't forget to catch us weekly on Twitter Spaces. That's every Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. Central African time. So do join us there. Next up, and before we let you go, Our book of the week is Permission to Screw Up, How I Learned to Lead by Doing Almost Everything Wrong by Kristen Hadid. The author explained how employers can build an environment where there is trust in a company. She believes that when people feel trusted, personal growth and growing your company is possible. I think that vulnerability is really where trust is born. So I think when you're talking about how do you build trust amongst the people you work closest with, you have to build a relationship with them and you have to be vulnerable. And so what that means is you have to talk about not just work, but your personal life and who you are outside of work. It means that you have to share when you don't have the answers and admit I messed up or I need help because that's also being vulnerable at work. And I've learned that we trust people more when they are vulnerable, when they're actually human, when people act like they're perfect and they have all the answers, you don't trust them because you know that no one's really perfect. And I think on the employer end, it's how do you create an environment where people feel safe saying, hey, I don't know how to do this. I need help because some people fear that if they say that it will make them look incompetent and like they can't do their jobs. But really, if you create an environment where people feel safe saying that stuff, you get further along. So as the leader going to your people and saying, hey, Let's talk about stuff that didn't work this week or that went wrong or where do we need help and making those conversations a regular thing. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring and that's an ideal worth preserving. When your family doesn't settle for anything less than magnificence, give them the best with Magnificent Maize Meal. On the field or in the classroom, Magnificent helps your family perform magnificently. Magnificent is a product of VKB Group. Visit vkb.co.za or like our Facebook page for more. VKB, for the love of the land. Now remember, if you'd like to review a book or perhaps you have a book suggestion, feel free to email us on info at foodformzanzi.co.za. Before we let you go, our farmer tip of the week comes from Dr. Ethel Piri, lecturer at Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Agri-Science. She focuses on the opportunity to establish our local fertilizer production with the rise in cost of fertilizer globally.
I don't see the war in the Ukraine as a challenge. I see it as an opportunity for uh, many farmers that are starting out and as well as the companies that are trying to get into the fertilizer industry in terms of organic fertilizers. There's an opportunity here for both the emerging farmers and those companies that get blocked by the monopolized world of fertilizer companies. In my research, I do organic production research on indigenous crops, but I do not use any chemicals. I always try to find a way to have the crops productive and protected using natural products. A lot of the farmers that are emerging, they're also trying to get into the export, you know, organic markets. If they start off as being organic using these biofertilizers or biopesticides, then I think it's going to be a great opportunity for them to be in this playing field. And our Farmer Tip of the Week from Dr. Ethel Piri, lecturer at Salambash University's Faculty of Agri-Science, brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Remember, if you loved it, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members, and most importantly, your fellow farmers. And also be sure to check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. From Ido Numdu, Nicole Ludolf, our producer Ming and Van Defend, and the rest of the Food from Zanzi team, have an awesome week. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Mzanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.